Luke chapter 9. I might, I might roam around too, so I don't know how, um, how we got to Luke chapter 9. Because Luke chapter 9 is actually kind of like this climax and this, this turning point that we see in the Gospel of Luke. And so when we're reading through the Gospel of Luke, it's, it's important to understand that, one, it's connected with the book of Acts. Right? Luke is the author of both of these books, and he probably wrote it probably before 65 A.D. because he doesn't really mention anything about the fall of uh, you, know, you know Jerusalem and, the, and these things. And so because of that, a lot of scholars will say, well, this has to be written, dated before that. And he kind of just finishes off with Paul uh, in prison in Rome. And uh, so it's, it's a narrative. It's telling us this story of Christ, his ministry here, the, the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and then we get into the book of Acts where it's about the spread of the gospel, right? First in Jer- Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of the platform. But we have to read it as a narrative. And you're going to see why it's important to understand that as we go into to, to Luke chapter 9. But, but more in the immediate context, we see this transition where there's this question, you know, who is this? And uh, so uh, I think it was uh, David, you can correct me if I'm wrong, he spoke on Luke chapter 8, or he should have, I saw it on the schedule there, and he, he probably mentioned uh, some things, but the story he talked about, one was where they were out on the boat, and there's the crashing and the waves, and they're going through all this turmoil. They come down, and they say, Lord, we're going to perish. Like, come on, like, do something, right? Right? And so maybe that psalm was something they sung, and they're like, boy, like, who is this that even the waves obey him? So we see the power over the sea and over the waves. And then we go on and you see a, a Jesus healing a man that is demon-possessed. And you see the answer to the question within that, right? He says, uh, the, the demon says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And so you kind of see an answer there, right? And so Luke is kind of transitioning into this thought of, well, who is this? And then uh, I think it was uh, our brother Dave Bosworth who, who spoke on verses 40 through 56 in Luke chapter 8, and the, the focus there being you have a woman who was sick for 12 years, gave all her money away to physicians so she can be healed. Nobody can heal her. And then all of a sudden, she touches the garment of Christ. Power, the dunamis, which we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about, went out from him, and she was made well. 12 years she was sick. Right? He has the power over sickness. But then there was this 12-year-old girl who was sick but pretty much dead. Right? Think of it as like a deadly disease, whereas maybe this disease that the woman had, it wasn't, it wasn't deadly because she had it for 12 years. Right? But you see Jesus heal her, but then you see death, and then you see Jesus heal the 12-year-old girl. Right? The power over death. And so the disciples are there. They're seeing all of these things. And what a tremendous sight it must have been. And so we come to Luke chapter 9. And in verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, 
And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the freedom to come together and to look and to study and to read and to hear your word. And Father, my prayer, our prayer, is that the preaching would not be done with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we come to chapter 9 where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. Now, remember what I said. This has to be interpreted as a narrative. It's a, it's a, it's a narrative. It's not something where we're commanded. It's not something where we see we also will receive this. Right? It's not something that we will receive. And he, he says something. He's, he, he called, he gave, and he sent. Right? And what did he give them? He gave them power and authority. The dunamis kai excusia. Power and authority. And if you look at the other gospels like Matthew and Mark, where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles in this specific instance, the word dunamis, the word power is not there. Only authority. And so Luke is building this thought of power. Right? And if you go back to like Luke, uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, you see it where he came down after he was fasting. And uh, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then you go to, to verse uh, 36, and he says, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word for with authority and power? Right? They see the power and authority. And Jesus is sending them out, giving them this power and authority. And remember, Luke was written with the book of Acts. And if you, it, it's a daunting, you know, it, well, it's not a, but kind of reading it straight through, right? Like, come on, we all like, you know, Chronicles of Narnia and all those, you know, we like to read through those books. But like read through the gospel of Luke and Acts together as like, this is a, this is a story. And it, it's just amazing how they kind of, coincide with one another and that, that they relate so much uh, with one another. And the idea is that we see the beginning of it in chapter 9. The Lord is, is, is sending out the 12. And in this case, he gave them power and authority. And eventually we get to the gospel or we get to the book of Acts and we see where power and authority comes from, from the Holy Spirit. Right? And, but, so they're going out with this power and with this authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So in their minds, they're like, whoa, this is what Jesus did. He's giving us this power and this authority. He was, he was casting out demons. He had the power and the authority over the demons. He was curing diseases. We're going to be doing the same stuff. This is so cool. I'm excited about this, right? I don't know if that's what they were thinking. Maybe they were nervous. You know, sometimes we get nervous when the Lord 
sends us out and even when he gives us this power and authority. But, but there they are. And he sent them out to do what? Proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. What is the kingdom of God? That's a, that's a, that's a, we're not going to cover that, okay? Like, so, so if you're like, yes, I always wanted to know because this is such a debate. No, no, we're not going to cover what the, what the kingdom of God is, but just kind of give a, a brief overview. One, it's the gospel, okay? Because Luke says that in verse six, right? And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. So the kingdom of God is the gospel. And what you have nowadays is you have this new perspective of Paul, and I'm not going to name specific individuals, but if you're interested, I could give you some interesting books to read. And so you, you have this idea that where it's like, we evangelicals got it all wrong. We've been interpreting the gospels through the writings of Paul. And so we tend to start with Paul. That's what they would say. And so where we need to really start with is the gospels and this whole idea of the kingdom of God. And so maybe you heard terms like, kingdom ethics, right? Where it's this idea that we need to, to change the morality of the world, right? And we need to, to make the world a, a better place. And that's what we need to be preaching. And that's kind of what their focus is on, not so much on who the king is, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but I love what uh, David Gooden, uh, he, he said, he, he said, the kingdom of God fully come will not mean simply the carrying on of present activities, and I'm kind of, this is kind of just a summary, but it will be the invasion of our world by the world that is beyond. And so when I think of the kingdom of God, because it's a biblical thought, and I, you know, I had to address this a couple of times in Jamaica, but I, I, I remember thinking to myself of Colossians 1.13, right? And this was kind of, this is Paul writing. So this isn't interpreting the gospels, uh, through Paul, but just that Paul is on the whole same page as the kingdom of God. He says he has transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so for me, when I think of the kingdom of God, I think it's that we can be, we can be transferred, right? We can be basically escape this world and become part of God's kingdom where Jesus Christ is the ruler. And in a sense, we inherit eternal life. I think of the Gospel of John. Kingdom of God is only mentioned three times. One, it's the same, right? He's talking to Nicodemus. We we read the verse, right? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I believe that one says he cannot see the kingdom of God. But then he goes on a little further. He says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What was he talking to Nicodemus about? Becoming a better person? No, the, the farthest thing from it, right? He's talking about being transferred, about receiving new life. That's the gospel. We have been transferred from darkness, from a domain of darkness, into God's kingdom. Now, therefore, should we live a certain way? Absolutely. Because we've, we have this, we've been transformed, right? And that, that's kind of uh, the idea when we see, you know, kingdom ethics and all that. So, so you could agree with those terms, but what do they really mean by them? So they were going out. What were they preaching? The gospel, which is the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The king. We can be part of that kingdom. 
And that is good news. And what happens within the context of that kingdom? No more sickness. No more evil, right? And so, so we look forward. We, we kind of thought about it this morning. We look forward to that time, right? Where Jesus Christ is going to be ruling, right? We look forward to the millennial kingdom where he's going to be ruling for a thousand years and and that there's going to be peace on earth, right? And I, I mean, we want that to come, but it also goes beyond that, right? To where we have eternal life and we are with Christ, the ruler and the king. And this is what they were proclaiming. And even as you think of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like they saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw him doing all these miracles. And they're like, you know, it's at hand. We can see it. We can touch it. So it's not this actual thing where like, okay, let's all become really good people. And then we're all part of the kingdom and we're going to create God's kingdom on earth, but it's the fact that they can have eternal life. All right, I, I want to keep going because it's such a, I love the topic and the subject, but I'm going to control myself. So they were proclaiming the kingdom of God and they were healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor money, nor, nor, nor tunics, you know, only one and all these things. What, what is Luke trying to present? So I think, uh, you know, we got picked up at the airport by, uh, our brother Dave and, uh, he, he was probably making fun of making fun of us in his head because I came out with one cart of bags, and I'm so I'm so I'm loading them up. But I'm like, hold on, I got seven more. He's looking at me. He's like, you already got ten on here. Like, what, what are we doing? So I come back, and I'm like, oh, I couldn't get them all. Hold on, I got to come back. And he's probably like, what, you know, what is this guy doing, right? So he's probably making fun of me a little bit. But sh- is that wrong? Because I mean, like, look at what Jesus said to the apostles. He said, don't take anything with you. Here we are going to Jamaica with. 15 bags, you know, and I was like, is it wrong? No, what's the point that Luke is trying to communicate? And what is the whole aspect of chapter nine, which we're going to see in the feeding of the 5,000, uh, if, if time permits, which it will. Uh, but, uh, the, the idea that depend on me, right? Like go, don't take anything with you. Don't accept their money. Don't just go in. If they receive you, stay with them. Take, take their hospitality, and that's all you need. Why? Because who's the one that they're to depend on? Christ. You know, so many of us depend on everything but Christ. And you just see that our world is driven by it. You know, one of our, our we try to create, uh, you know, we have these family values, and we try to instill them, and it says, be content, right? I mean, Hebrews 13.5, so clear. Be content with what you have. Man, it's like, it's so tough living in our culture because everything is like, don't be content, work harder, earn more money, do more, like come from the bottom and re- make your way to the top. Don't, don't be content, right? But we're to be content. Why? Because the Lord gives us what we need. The, one of the things I love about being in ministry and it's like not getting a salary, right? You, you know, we don't, we don't get these salaries. Now giving can stay consistent and we can have all these different topic talks about that as well. But one of the things I love is that you, you, you don't know if you're going to have X amount of dollars this month or next month or whatever month it is. Right. And so as I'm budgeting, I'm like, okay, we want to do activities with the kids. 
you know, we want to take them, uh, you know, out somewhere, and it might cost us 50 bucks, $60, so, you know, whatever it is. And we're like, okay, Lord, that's what we want to do. And, you know, we do that three times, and all of a sudden it's $180. And I'm like, okay, that's a little steep, but we'll, we'll pray about it. Then all of a sudden the money comes in, and it's like, oh, yeah, uh, no, we can't do that. Why? The Lord didn't provide for that. But he gives us rest when we need it. That's what I love. Like, there's a period of time where it's like, oh, boy, now he's given it to us. Now he's encouraging us. You know, and it's like somebody will specifically say, here's this gift. Please use it to do something for you and the family. I love that. I, you, you didn't get that. When I was in secular work, I did not get that. I didn't get those gifts, right? I, I got like, okay, this is my money, and you, know, and, and you just have that mentality. But the point is, who are you depending on? Right? And that's why so many of us are depending on our employers. They're depending on our, on their jobs. They're like, well, I depend on my job to give me my money. No. Your job is your, it can be a mission field and the, the Lord has brought you there. He has called you there. He has set you apart to go into this community of your workplace, whatever it is, to be a light. And as a result, He's giving you funds. So when they, when they don't give you a raise, it's okay. Nobody said amen. See? It's like, no, it's not. I need my 3%, right? My taxes went up. I didn't hear any amens. That's, that's okay. All right. But when the disciples were sent out, don't take anything. There's no need for it. Depend on me. I'm the one who's going to provide for you. I'm the one who's going to make you sufficient for the ministry, for the work, and the, especially the work that they were sent and commissioned by, by him. And it says, whatever house you enter, you know, you stay there. You depart, and wherever they do not receive you, you leave and you shake the dust off your feet. Condem- basically, they're condemning them. That's what they're doing, right? And that, that's kind of like a, an old Jewish, right? They would, they would go into a country. As they would leave it, they'd shake the dust off their feet. All right, we don't want these pagans contaminating us because we worship the true living God. Uh, you know, gave them a very nationalistic view of themselves, which could be damaging in a to a, to a certain degree, but they shaked it off, and it's okay. We don't have these pagans. And actually, Luke writes about about uh, Paul, and I think it's Silas, right? Paul and Silas, they're they're in Antioch, or no, Barnabas, sorry. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch of Syria, right there. And as they're leaving to go to Iconium, they shake the dust off their feet. And so, what what is the point there? It's that they're going in. You notice what Jesus tells them: preach the kingdom of God. I, this, I'm going to have to explain this, okay? I don't want everybody to say Mike's, Mike's a heretic, okay? but I'm going to explain it. Preaching the gospel does not involve preaching condemnation. Say, whoa, he's a heretic. He thinks everybody's going to get saved and all these other things, whatever. No, what do I mean by that? Jesus himself said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why? Because the world already knows that they're condemned. So when the di- disciples, the apostles were going into these places and they were leaving and they were shaking the dust, we told you about the good news. Now it's up to you. Right? And so when we go in and we're preaching the gospel, it shouldn't be the goal to, to go into these certain communities like we do. Okay, let's go into the, the uh, abortion and everybody who's had an abortion. We start attacking them like we need to save the babies and, you know, you're evil. And, right? We, we, should not, we shouldn't be condemning these people. Why? Because the gospel, they, they already know they're under condemnation. And the gospel itself preaches condemnation. Not us, right? And that's where we have to learn 
to differentiate. So when we're going and we're telling somebody, listen, are you a sinner? Like anybody who says no, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe the Lord's telling you to move on, right? But, but most people would say, yeah, you know, I've done something wrong, right? And so you begin to have these conversations. You say, listen, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you get into the God who say, and he's the only way that you can have a right relationship with God. Did I just condemn them? No. Yes. <laughs> right? Why? Because I didn't say, you know, what, what you're, this is wrong and that's wrong. And that's, Satan loves to suck you into those conversations. He loves to guide those conversations about specific sins. Is it wrong to do this? Is it wrong to do that? But you think it's wrong, don't you, right? He loves to guide the direction to, he, he, to, to those conversations, right? And so instead, what we need to focus on, like, listen, we're all in the same bucket. I think it was um, uh, Michael Brown. He wrote a book, uh, Can You Be Gay and Christian? And the whole, the whole idea of that was that he, he, he said, you want to talk about equality with anybody in this world? Talk about all our sinfulness. We're all in the same boat. We're all equal. Amen. 100%. Right? And the idea is that we're not condemning specific things, but we're preaching the kingdom of God and that it can fit, it can give you eternal life. It can give you the things, this, this peace in your life and this, this, you know, desire that you have to be in a relationship and satisfy that desire. And that's what we are to be preaching. So when they shake the dust off their feet, when they, they're like, this is on you. We came here. We preached it. You're making that choice, right? And so they departed. They went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And then what happened? So you have this, they were sent out. They were doing all these great things. And then you have the question from Herod. Who is this, right? Herod said, John, I behead it. But who is this, verse 9, about whom I hear such things? Referring to Jesus. So he sees it. And it's, it's interesting what it says about Herod. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. I love how Luke, Luke is the only one to use that word. And the way he uses it, um, one situation, it's, it's where, um, the, the Herod in the book of he throws them in prison and he was perplexed that they weren't there. Because nothing was broke, right? Like nothing, it just said that they kind of went out. And so he was perplexed. And so the whole idea of that word in the instances that it's used is that it's like, you know, it's true. Oh, in Acts 2, uh, verse, when they were speaking in tongues, it says that the crowd was perplexed, right? Meaning like, we know what we just heard, but it's not really like, like what, what's going on, right? And so there's this doubt, even though you know it's true. And so with Herod, he's perplexed because he's like, Look at all these things. You know, they, they point to the Messiah. And what is he concerned about, though? He's concerned about his rule, right? He's like, I don't want the Messiah to come. I'm still ruling. Kind, kind of how I get sometimes where it's like, man, I just want to see my daughter grow up. Then the Lord come back, right? No, but that, <laughs> the, the idea is that he's looking at it and he's saying to himself, all right, I want to rule, but these things are true. So it's like this doubt, but you know it's true. Does that make sense? It's like, I'm doubting something, but I know it's, know it's true. And this is Herod, and this is what he's doing. And so there he is, and he's perplexed, because he's like, some are saying it's John, some are saying it's Elijah. Is, is that who it is? No, we know who, the son of the most high God. John, uh, Luke chapter 8 answered it for us, right? And so if he already answered it for us, and we know who he is as the reader, we're probably looking like, man, who, who, what is Herod, you know, what's he doing? 
And then if you even go further into the book of Acts, his son, uh, I think he's called King Herod, he beheaded some of the disciples and he went through all that. And so you just see Luke developing this idea like Christianity is not about earthly governments. His rule isn't about the earth, right? Because you see all the kings of the earth, they're kind of denying him. All the rulers of the earth, we see denying him. And what did he say? The other instance of the kingdom of God in, in the gospel of John is, is when he's standing before, I think it's Herod, could be Pilate, and he's saying that my kingdom is not of this world. Right? It's not of this world. And so he's, Luke is kind of separating this idea. You want to know about the kingdom of God? Well, it's not of this world. It has nothing to do with Herod, has nothing to do with Pilate and the rulers of this world. And so now we transition into the feeding of the 5,000 or the supper by the lake. And so you, I'm not going to read through the story for the sake of time, but what is the emphasis of the feeding of the 5,000? Only miracle that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And here they are. They're on their return. They come back. And they're, they're, they're coming back. And they're, they're telling Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus is like, hey, you know what? Let's go take a rest. We don't get that from Luke, but we get that from the Gospel of Mark. And also, Jesus was probably a, lamenting a little bit. Why? Because at the same time, he heard about the beheading of John the Baptist. And so he's saying to himself, yes, let's go to this desolate place. Let's lay back. You guys just did a tremendous job. And so, so it's okay to rest, right? No, it's not okay to rest. Because when the crowds came, he had compassion on them. And another thing I love about, I, I shouldn't say, it's, it's not negative. It's not, a, it's not a negative thing if you're in secular work, okay? It's, I, I mean, I was in it a long time, 15, 16 years, whatever it was, and... It's great. But one of the things I love about ministry, because ministry is a 24-7 job. Not many of you thought, oh, preach once a week? I could do that. Right? You know, sometimes that's, oh, live in Jamaica? Sign me up. Where do I sign up? Right? And, uh, And so, but one thing that I love about it is that the Lord will give you rest when you need it. There's times where we just go... We were in Jamaica and we were going like two, three, four, five weeks and just everything was happening and all these different things. And all of a sudden we just got a week, you know, it's like, okay, it's calm, you know? And, and so it, it's okay to rest. It's okay to ask the Lord. We, we need that in our lives, but we don't allow other people to suffer for the sake of our rest, right? The Lord didn't do that, right? He, and that, that's like another thing. I remember when I used to stay up, I, I used to think so proud of myself. I used to stay up all night and pray. Right. And I used to be like, yeah, you know, I'd come home at like six in the morning and I'd be like, man, that was so awesome. We just prayed for like eight hours all night. Yeah, I'm real spiritual. You know what I would do after that? Sleep. Right. (laughs) Jesus didn't. He never did that. He never did that. He would pray all night and he'd come down. He said, let me go teach the people. Right. And because that's the idea. It's like God will give us rest when we need it. But we also have to be on top of our game to the point where it's like we need to show compassion to people because that's exactly what happened. The crowds followed him. And it says that uh, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. That's what he was doing. And so all of a sudden the, com- the days come and the disciples are like, finally, the day's almost done. We're going to get our rest. They're like, please send them away. 
they, it's not that they didn't have compassion. It's actually that they were probably showing compassion to the people. Like, we don't want them to be here all night. Like, you, you know, they're not at that level yet. They have, to, they have to learn more before they can be with Jesus all night like that. And, and so there they are. And they're always like, give them something to eat. Feed them. Why are you going to send them away? This is another opportunity for us to show them compassion, but not only compassion, but again, to demonstrate the kingdom of God. And that's what the feeding of the 5,000 is all about. It's, it points to basically the end times, the, I say big words and I barely know the meaning, but I don't know how else to describe it, right? But it, but it, it points to the eschatological view of the supper that we are all going to have as Christians, right? Like we're going to have the marriage, the, the, the marriage of the supper of the lamb, right? And like, so when we're raptured and we're taken up, we're going to have the, there's going to be the consummation and then there's going to be this big marriage feast. And Isaiah 25, six through 10 kind of talks about this. And maybe some of them were thinking through that as he was feeding. And so there's a couple interesting things, right? Notice that he tells them, he tells them to put them in groups of 50, right? He tells them, okay, get them together, get them to these groups. Does he go into their economic background? Does he go into the ethnicity? Now, we're going to assume most of them were Jewish, right? So we, we, we can't go too much into that. But basically, he takes all of that stuff out the window. He's like, just get them into groups of 50. I don't care who they are. And I'm going to show you and give you a glimpse into what it's going to be like when my bride comes together and we have this feast together. And that's why I love the Lord's Supper. It, this, is, this is what it points to. And you know, you want to know one of, the, one of the most frustrating things about the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about like the universal church. For me, that I see is that we ignore the unity of the local church, right? Like if I don't like something in a local church, I can just get up and go to the next place, right? I mean, like that didn't happen in the early church. It couldn't happen because like if you were going to get up and go to the next place, they were probably going to kill you. <laughs> so you're like, yeah, I'm just going to say, and they, they, you're talking about Gentiles and Jews and all these things, right? But when we come together and we break bread, 1 Corinthians 10 emphasizes the unity that it brings together. Like this is my brother and my sister and we're here breaking bread together, remembering our Lord together, right? And that's what the feeding of the 5,000 kind of points to. It brings it to, and Luke builds on that, right? To bring it to where he had a fervent desire. Luke says that about the Lord's Supper. He had a fervent desire. And so it points to that, but it also points even further to where when we become like where Christ comes for us, he comes for the bride and we have our meal with him and we're with him forever. The bridegroom and the bride together. And so, so I love that aspect of uh, the, the feeding of 5,000. Remember, there was, no, there was no choosing places of honor for the people. Right? There, there was none of that. There, there's no honor within the church. You even see the disciple in, in, in uh, verse 46 of chapter 9, there was an argument. They were like, who's the greatest? Who's the least? And all these things. They're arguing with one another. It's like, just, just 
as the, you know, love the children, the one who loves the children, brings them unto him, and doesn't think highly of himself, that's the greatest. You know, and that's how the church is to be. And what's interesting about this, to tie it back to one through six. So we see what the Lord's Supper points to, right? It points to this, this great event of the supper, right? That the, the bride and the bridegroom, when Christ comes back for his church, it points to the Lord's Supper being around the table with the body of believers, 1 Corinthians 10. But to bring it and tie it back with Luke 9, 1 through 6, who are the ones that are passing out the baskets? The disciples. Who were the ones that thought to themselves, we can never do that. We cannot feed these people with five five loaves and two fish. What is it? Help me out. Two fish. Okay, good. All right. Thank you. I forget these things. When I get on a roll, I forget these things. They just like slip your mind. But five loaves and two fish. We cannot do this. You know what drives me crazy? When people come up to me and they say, I could never do what you do. Drives me nuts. <laughs> because I can't do what I do. I can't. I, I get terrified. You know, I, I tell people, and I, I just open up sometimes, and forgive me, you know. But I tell, there's times where I was in Jamaica, and I'm driving down the road, and it's pitch black, and I'm like, Lord, please don't let me get a flat tire here. I don't know who's going to... I remember when they just killed two missionaries uh, the next parish over. And so I'm thinking to myself, I was terrified. Terrified. But why would I keep going? <laughs> not because of myself, not because I can do anything, but because of what Christ has already done, and what he can continue to do through me. Just as he did with the disciples here. That's the principle. Listen, they couldn't feed the 5,000 with these five loaves and two fish. But the Lord could. And once we realize that the Lord can work through us more than we can work ourselves, you become. I, I, I remember I had this epiphany when I was in Jamaica. When we first went down and we were there, I said I wasn't going to talk about Jamaica, but... Um, Lord, forgive me, I lied. They, but but I, we first went down, we were busy. We were doing this ministry and that ministry, and I was getting involved in all these things. And, and like I'm like, man, we got we to gotta get all these things done so we can write a beautiful newsletter, right, and send it back to everybody who's, who's basically, you know, supporting us financially. And we're like, we got we to give them and show them what, what their money's doing, right? You know, like the Lord's using it. And so we'd have all these things, and it's like, but I finally came and I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to rest in the work that you have already done and just be open to doing what you want to do through me. And you know what that involved? Just opening up our home. And pretty soon we would just have people coming in and you begin to see people hurting, crying, you know, men that I, I, I knew them for a year already and they come into my house and then we start talking and then I see tears. You know, why does nobody in the church love me? And I'm thinking to myself, you thought that the whole time and I was ignoring you. You know, and it's what can the Lord do through us, not what we can do. We rest in the work of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we can do tremendous things. You know, that's why it's like I don't, people sometimes, another question is like, how many people got saved through your ministry? I, I don't, I have no idea. Because I don't stand before, I don't, I, they don't stand before me and I say, you're good, you're not, you're good. I don't do that. How many professions and all these other things, right? It's simply what the Lord has done. And he's just using me as a vessel, just as he 
did with the disciples. And then what happens after this? And I'm done. I promise. Even though I didn't start on time. But, and they told me I can go till 1.30. <laughs> who... Who is this? That question comes back. The question comes back again. So you see them sent out. They do all these things. Herod asks, who is this? Then you see the feeding of the 5,000. Whoa, what's going on? He brings the disciples aside and he says, who does everybody say that I am? And they go through it and they say, well, you're John the Baptist, but others say you're Elijah and other ones are prophets of the old has risen. And they, they, so they say, this is what the people are saying. But then he asked them directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered. But he didn't ask Peter. We get confused because that you is plural. So when he asked the question and he says, but who do you, maybe, what do we say up north? Well, I know like down south, don't they say y'all, right? Up north, we say you all. In Jamaica, we say unu. Any Jamaicans here? Probably could say it better than me. Right? You all, right? This, it's this you plural. And so he asked all of them, but Peter answered. He says, the Christ of God. And so we begin to see this development of who Jesus is. And if Peter is now confessing, he's like, I saw you calm the wind. I saw you calm the storm. I saw you cast out that demon. I saw you heal the woman who's been sick by her just touching the garment and the power came out. And I see you raise the young girl basically from death to life. You sent us out and we did all these things. We don't know specifically what they are, right? Because we don't have it. But, you know, we did all these things. Now we come together in the feeding of five thousands and and... You, you know, we, we remember Isaiah 25, 6, where it says the Lord of hosts will give all people a great feast of food. And then it goes on to say other things. But it, so, so, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So what do we do with that? And that's where Luke begins to transition now from the ministry in Galilee to his road and his journey to Jerusalem where he's going to take up his cross and die for us. And he's going to basically come alongside the disciples and show you, you thought you knew what the kingdom of God looked like. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And so tonight we'll talk about, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to take up your cross? Uh, the, basically, the theology of risk we're going to talk about tonight, which is very important because a lot of people think, oh, missionaries, I'm going to go Middle East, be a martyr, and I'm going to kill my, you know, I'm going to, yeah, yeah, I'm taking up my cross daily. And uh, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the number one death of missionaries, you know what it is? Sing. Singing. Singing? No, sin. Sin? Well, yeah, sin causes you to die. But the number one death of missionaries is, is car accidents. Why? Because they think to themselves, well, we're doing out. The Lord's going to protect us, and we don't have to use any wisdom in a sense. And so not that everybody does that, but it's this idea of the theology of risk and what it looks like to take up your cross and to carry it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We, we thank you for this example, this, this, this story that we have of the apostles. We thank you for them being sent out and given power and authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we think of the great things that they have done preaching the kingdom of God, the gospel. And Father, we think of the the feeding of the 5,000 and how Christ included the disciples to pass out these loaves and and they, they, were, they were being used, again, to tell about the kingdom of God. And so, Father, we, we look at that and we realize that, that we have a responsibility. That as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we recognize who he is, that he is the, the, the Christ. And, Father, we pray that we would live in such a way that we would understand who Jesus is. And that He is the living God. And Father, we pray that the Spirit would convict us and challenge us and change us. And that when we think of the question, who is this? We say it with confidence, Christ. And Father, we thank You that He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we pray that we would live in such a way that You are glorified and honored through us. We give thanks. Amen.